Welcome to Prescription for Justice. My name is Martin Donahue. Today's topic is the death penalty. Don't turn the channel. From ancient times through the 18th century, methods of execution included crucifixion, crushing by elephant, keel hauling, the guillotine, and, non-metaphorically, death by a thousand cuts. Between 1608 and 1972, there were an estimated state-sanctioned 15,000 executions in the colonies, which later became the United States. Executions in the 19th and much of the 20th century were carried out by hanging, known as lynching when done extrajudicially, or by firing squad. In the late 19th century, the electric chair, invented by dentist Alfred Southwick, came into use. Famed inventor Thomas Edison lobbied for its use as part of a scheme to capture a larger share of the nascent energy market from his competitor, George Westinghouse. The gas chamber, into which cyanide gas is released to suffocate the prisoner, was introduced in 1924. In 2001, the Georgia Supreme Court ruled that electrocution violates the Constitution's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, stating that it causes, quote, excruciating pain cooked brains, and blistered bodies." End quote. In 2008, Nebraska became the last remaining state to agree. In the 1970s and 1980s, anesthesiologist Stanley Deutsch and pathologist Jay Chapman developed techniques of lethal injection, along with a death cocktail consisting of three drugs designed to humanely kill inmates. An anesthetic, a paralyzing agent, and potassium chloride, which stops the heart from beating. Lethal injection was first used in Texas in 1982 and is now the predominant mode of execution in this country. Death by lethal injection cannot be considered humane. In one large study published in the prestigious medical journal The Lancet, 88% of lethal injectees had lower levels of anesthesia than those required for surgery. 43% had concentrations consistent with awareness. Of course, because of the paralyzing agent, none were able to move or cry out. In 1972, the Supreme Court temporarily halted executions. Four years later, after states rewrote their death penalty laws, SCOTUS determined that the new laws were constitutional and executions resumed. Since 1976, 32 states have executed 1,389 prisoners, including 11 women. Texas leads all other states by a wide margin. When former President George W. Bush was governor of Texas, he presided over 152 executions, claimed the death penalty was infallible, and openly mocked a death row inmate who had converted to Christianity. Former Texas Governor Rick Perry presided over 230 executions, but he was in office longer, making Bush the lesser the state's executioner-in-chief. Before 2005, the United States was the only country to legally and openly execute juvenile defendants. In 2005, the Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional for youths who were under age 18 at the time of their crimes. Seven separate international treaties prohibit the execution of juveniles, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child, one of many human rights treaties the U.S. has not signed. In 1986, the Supreme Court ruled the execution of the mentally ill unconstitutional. Then, in 2002, they ruled execution of mentally handicapped individuals unconstitutional. Unfortunately, at least 34 mentally handicapped people were executed between 1976 and 2002. Today, states determine the definition of mentally impaired. 
Nearly half of those executed between 2000 and 2015 had been diagnosed with a mental illness or substance use disorder as adults. Globally, the U.S. ranks fourth in executions after China, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, and followed by Pakistan and Iraq. 56 countries plus Taiwan and the Palestinian territories execute civilians. 35 more countries have death penalty laws on the books, but no longer use them. 32 U.S. states currently allow capital punishment, although mo almost all recent executions have been carried out by just five states, Texas, Missouri, Florida, Oklahoma, and Georgia. On the other hand, many states have outlawed capital punishment, including Illinois, New York, New Jersey, New Mexico, Connecticut, Maryland, and Nebraska. Blacks murdering whites are more likely to be sentenced to death than whites who murder blacks. Death sentences are more common in rural areas than urban areas. And billions have been spent to implement the death penalty, partly a consequence of multiple appeals. There are 3,019 individuals on death row, with the highest numbers in California, Florida, and Texas. Approximately 60 of these are women. Very few death row inmates are ever executed. Their life expectancy is about 12 years, a consequence of this population being relatively aged. Errors and exonerations are common. Serious constitutional errors mar two-thirds of capital cases, including unqualified or even sleeping attorneys, prosecutorial misconduct, and improper jury instructions. Since 1973, 146 people have been released from death row due to evidence of innocence after an average of 11 years behind bars, thanks largely to DNA testing and dogged attorneys like those with the Innocence Project. The Justice for All Act of 2004 grants inmates convicted of federal crimes the right to DNA testing to support claims of innocence and increases financial compensation for wrongly convicted federal prisoners. Law enforcement sometimes arrests the wrong person, and criminology is an imperfect science. There have been 1,590 post-conviction exonerations in the U.S. since 1989, 329 of these through DNA evidence. The true suspects and or perpetrators have been identified in about one-half of the DNA cases. One-third of eyewitness identifications in criminal cases are felt to be wrong, and eyewitness misidentifications are responsible for three-quarters of convictions overturned by DNA evidence. Others have been convicted based on unreliable testimony of jailhouse informants. Furthermore, False confessions are common, likely due to coercion, mental exhaustion, and or mental impairment. In 1969, a U.S. Supreme Court decision allowed police to lie to suspects during interrogations, thus increasing the pressure and potential for false confessions. An estimated 10% of U.S. adults exonerated of crimes have falsely confessed, as have one quarter of those cleared by DNA testing. Open interrogation would discourage false confessions and decrease costs associated with appeals. Currently, Alabama, Illinois, Maine, and Minnesota require videotaping of every interrogation and confession. 65% of those exonerated have been financially compensated, as is required by 29 states, the federal government, and the District of Columbia. Awards vary from state to state. Extensive criminological data have shown that the death penalty is not a deterrent to violent crime. Rather, in some cases, it may be an incitement to further violence. Death penalty states do not have lower homicide rates than states without capital punishment.
Public opinion in favor of the death penalty has decreased from 80% in 1994 to 63% in 2014. Less than one half favor the death penalty when the alternative of life without parole exists. Even so, some who disapprove of the death penalty are willing to put up with errors, as a 2012 survey found that 57% felt that the death penalty had been unfairly applied and 73% were somewhat or very concerned that innocent persons had been executed. Today, moratoria on the death penalty are in place in 15 states and four more have gubernatorial moratoria. Some cities have called for moratoria. The American Bar Association, the UN Commission on Human Rights, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch all oppose the death penalty. The American Medical Association, American Public Health Association, American Nurses Association, and the American Board of Anesthesia all oppose the participation of health professionals in executions. However, only seven out of 35 death penalty states incorporate AMA ethics policy, including barring doctors from taking an active role in the death chamber. Some states provide immunity to doctors participating in executions by preventing medical boards from taking disciplinary action against them. Many states also provide anonymity. Very few physicians are aware of AMA guidelines prohibiting for physician participation, as it is not routinely covered in most medical schools' curricula. U.S. President Donald Trump openly praises brutal dictators who have been responsible for extrajudicial executions, such as Russia's Vladimir Putin and the Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte. His Supreme Court appointments could change interpretation of death penalty law for decades. The 2020 election will be a watershed moment in deciding the degree of America's respect for the rule of law. My guest today is Ron Steiner. Ron was board chair of Oregonians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty from 2010 until this January and will soon join the organization's advisory board. He previously served on the steering committee of the New Mexico Coalition to Repeal the Death Penalty, which achieved its goal in 2009. Ron also served for six years on the National Board of Directors for Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation. Ron, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Tell us about how your interest in the death penalty arose. Well, it arose because I was doing volunteer work in New Mexico, where I lived at the time, and working for a halfway house. There were formerly incarcerated people there. And, and when I went there first times, I thought, these guys are different to me. And I learned very quickly that they weren't different to me at all. They were guys who had bad backgrounds or made some mistakes, but they were human beings just, just like I was. And that led me on to more involvement with the criminal justice system, and Sister Helen Prejean came to Albuquerque to do a speech. And she a, had dead man walking. And a fundraiser. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and she just lit my candle by saying some very simple things that made me think, that's not fair. I need to learn more about this. Because at the time, I would not spent any time paying attention or learning about the death penalty. Your introduction was spectacular. I, I can't wait to show that to lots of Oregonians. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and tell us, um, what is the mission of Oregonians for alternatives to the death penalty? Our mission is to repeal the death penalty. Our task, though, is to educate the voters because Oregon needs to have a vote of the people to change the law. It's a unique situation. Only Oregon, California, and Florida are the only states who do that. Mm. But it's in the Constitution. So we need a vote of the people, but most people don't pay much attention to it. 
since we don't use it much in Oregon, people come up to me and say, do we still have a death penalty here? They don't even know that much about it. Yeah. So it's a matter of education at this point. Edu education, then getting them energized to think about this in a proactive way, and then eventually have a vote of the people with knowledgeable voters. Right, right. Um, tell me, what are some of the arguments in favor of repealing the death penalty? In favor of repealing the death penalty, yes. there's a, a whole litany of different things. It's a very expensive proposition to do. It's taking away a lot of money from other things that could really deter crime. We spend over $29 million a year working on the death penalty. It's flawed. That's nationwide. In Oregon. In Oregon. In Oregon. $29 million mm -hmm. every year just to keep it on the books, and we don't use it. We haven't had an execution since 1997. Mm -hmm. We've only had two in the last 54 years. Mm -hmm. So it's a very costly proposition. Uh, another thing is it is not a deterrent. There's been lots of studies to try and say that it was a deterrent, and it's not. The most eminent research organization in the country says that it's, you can't tell one way or another that it's a deterrent. Mm -hmm. A lot of people get their impetus to uh, to support the death penalty through revenge. And revenge is not justice. And it's a not a just system. It's arbitrary in its great nature. There's a big bias, number one. It's not just in terms of race, and it's not just in terms of place, depending on what state you're in or what county you're in and what prosecutor you have in that county. There's a lot of discrepancy and difference in who gets pursued with a death case. Mm. Uh, you're absolutely right in, in terms of both race and place and the fact that it's so unequally applied, not only to African Americans, but as I said, if you're an African American uh, and you kill a white person, you're much more likely uh, to get the death penalty than if you're a white person killing an African American. About nine times more likely if you're a, a, a black person killing a white person. Now, uh, to play devil's advocate, um, what are arguments for keeping the death penalty, for not repealing it? Well, most of the people that want to keep the death penalty say something terrible has happened and we need to make the score even. Revenge, retribution, mm -hmm. going in that direction. So that's the number one thing that people say. And they say if they had a terrible thing to do, and they, a lot of people will reference the Bible. It's in the Bible, an eye for an eye. Well, the Bible, even though it's in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. doesn't stop at an eye for an eye. There's a lot more to tell about that. And as a matter of interest, we do a lot of polling of people who are with us and against us on this issue. Mm -hmm. And the faith community is generally pretty strong. And the faith communities are pretty much lined up on our side, including the Jewish communities in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Just about every rabbi in their congregation mm -hmm. is against it, even though the, the violence that was in the Bible was in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So they, they have lots of laws that keep it mitigated. And you can certainly cherry pick a, a, a lot of um, crazy quotes from the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and yet the overarching message of the Bible is basically do good, treat others like you want to be treated. And certainly, um, as someone who was brought up with Christianity, the overwhelming message of Christ is a message of love, of turn the other cheek. It's Absolutely. not one of vengeance. Absolutely. Um, why are the costs associated with the death penalty so high? For instance, how many are on death row now in Oregon? Well, it's a little squishy because some people have been, their case has been overturned and they're going to get out, but they're still living on the row. So we yeah. think it's 33 uh -huh. at the moment. 
uh, one woman who's up at C Coffee Creek and all the rest are men. Uh -huh. And they're housed in Salem at the, at the uh, Oregon State Penitentiary. So, the uh, tell me again the first part of your question. Well, I, I was asking, first of all, you answered how many are on death row, but why are the costs, oh, the costs. associated? Yeah. Why $29 million a year? In Oregon, we have an automatic appeals process that the legislature put in place when we brought the death penalty back in 1964 or 84. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we took our, if you believe this, we took our protocols from Texas, of all mm -hmm. places, the most killing state of the union. Right. So that, so this appeals process is to make sure that we don't kill innocent people. Mm -hmm. So as soon as a, a uh, death case is called for, you start off with the first case or the first trial, and it's really two trials, one for uh, guilt and innocence, and then another one for, for uh, sentencing. The initial trials, if it's a death case versus another case for murder that doesn't go for death, cost somewhere between 800000 to a million dollars more just in that first trial. Mm -hmm. And then there's nine more appeals right after that. And these gotcha. appeals take a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for the defense people to prepare their documents. It takes a lot of time for the judges to give their reports. So between appeals, it could be two years, three years, maybe even longer than that. Mm -hmm. Justice Paul DeMunez, former Chief Justice Paul DeMunez, did a study over the last 34 years. 60% of our death cases have been overturned. Mm. And if sometimes there are about the sixth or seventh or eighth one that gets overturned, it goes back to number one. Mm -hmm. So the lawyering, the appeals process, and all these appeals processes are going to cost a lot of money, and that's where it is. Right, and with an already underfunded criminal justice system in the state, one could imagine many other uses to which that $29 million Absolutely. There was a study that was done a few years back of police executives, police chiefs, and sheriffs from across the country. And a police chief say there's about six or seven other things, like more police on the street, addiction programs for rehabilitation, more education, job training, all these death penalty was mentioned by only 2% of those people taking that survey. Interesting. So the, the law enforcement people are not in favor of it necessarily. Right. And police chiefs are less inclined to do it as sheriffs. And that, so I asked the chief one time, what's the difference between, you're all law enforcement people. He says it's easy. We are appointed, sheriffs are elected. So that's the political aspect that comes into the picture. I see. Uh-huh. Got it. And in my mind, the purposes of, of incarcerating are, I think, threefold. One is, one is punishment, the other is restitution, uh, and the third would be rehabilitation, um, because you want someone to, to pay some sort of punishment for their crime. You want them to ideally do some form of work uh, or uh, service that they can provide restitution, not just for the victims, but for the communities that they damaged. And when they come out, you don't want them committing further crimes. Um, so when you're talking about, at least in terms of the death penalty, this emphasis on uh, sort of uh, revenge, um, that doesn't accomplish any of those things and doesn't make the rest of us at all safer uh, and certainly doesn't help the system as a whole. What can you tell me? You've interacted with family members of those who have been murdered. 
Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Well, my involvement with that was really with the Murder Victim Families for Reconciliation, and fortunately I never had that in my family, but I was there for other purposes because of my experience in this field and in marketing. But I, this organization had over 4,000 family members who belonged to it and were very much against the death penalty. Mm -hmm. What they find is, and there's lots of them here in Oregon, we have a little booklet that has 11 of those stories, they find that another act of violence, which is an execution, does not bring their loved one back. Mm -hmm. Another act of violence does not make them hold. Another act of violence does not make them forget their loved one. Mm -hmm. They want to learn how to live and carry on with their life. That's the reconciliation part, mm -hmm. the ability to do that. Sometimes forgiveness comes into the picture and sometimes it's not. But people who have had that, they get tied up in the revenge part and they never get out of that box until they can find a way to reconcile and move on with their life. And sometimes forgiveness is the key for them. To do and tell that. us again the name of this group for those who are interested. Murder Victim Families for Reconciliation. Gotcha. And we invite people who are, had that experience, if they want the support of OADP, we're happy to do that. We have lots of resources. We have lots of people who are members who belong to us and we give them support. One of the things that happens to those people is when something like that happens, nobody knows how to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And so they're isolated. Mm -hmm. They feel alone. Yeah. And we have one of our board members who lost her dad, uh, who, who was murdered in Korea. Yeah. She says, more people came up to me and said they were sorry when my boyfriend left me than when my dad died. Oh. And so they're, they're alone and all they need is for some consolation, some conversation, some right. people who support them. You know, I, I find the same thing in um, the work I do as a physician, in that, that death is a subject that is still very taboo, that people are very afraid of, and that mostly um, people are just hungry for solace and empathy and yeah. information. There was a study carried out oh, 20 or 25 years ago that looked at the mental health of the surviving spouse of someone who had died in the hospital. And what they found was that those who had received a phone call approximately a week after their spouse had died from the attending physician, just a five minute phone call, even less, just to say, I'm thinking about you. Do you have any questions about how your husband died, about the process of his illness and so on, had much better self-rated mental health uh, over the subsequent year this, yeah. than those who are just left hanging with yeah. questions and feeling isolated. Yeah. So I, I, that comes into play in so many different ways. My heart really goes out to the, to the um, families of the victims because I cannot even pretend to imagine what it must be like in their shoes and the level of grief that they suffer and yet um, how they can draw from within themselves that level of forgiveness. Yeah. And I, I think it, it's... I don't know, I, I think it sets a challenge to all of us um, to be more forgiving in our own yeah. lives for, for lesser slights. Each one of those stories are very heartwarming stories. Abigail, who lives in Silverton, she says she was tied up with the revenge part of it for 12 years until she took something called the Course of Miracles and she learned about forgiveness and how important that was. And that freed her from that terrible cage that she was in. She would say, he not only killed Catherine, He's killing me. So she finally got over that. And now she speaks all over the world. 
And she speaks at many of our events here in, in Oregon. So what can interested viewers do to find out more information and become more involved at this issue? And what have we got coming before the legislature? Thank you for that question. Uh, they can join us uh, through OADP. Go to www.oadp.org. There's lots of information there. There's a place where you can sign up so that you get our quarterly newsletter and any alerts that are coming on. In terms of alerts, we have alert that's going out right now because we have some legislation that's going into the session this year, in fact, next week, that will not repeal the death penalty because we need a vote of the people for right. that. But it will curtail the ability of prosecutors to easily pursue death cases. Mm -hmm. And it will make it more difficult to win those death cases. So we are, the, the terminology across the country is reduce the use. Mm -hmm. And if we can keep reducing the use, it's going down very rapidly now. But and what are the prospects for a ballot measure in the next five, ten years? Well, it has to be in a general election, so the first time there's an opportunity would be in 2000. Mm -hmm. Depending on this legislation 20. and the polling that we do, and we are moving toward a point where we have enough to do that, then we could do it as early as 2000, but after that it's every two years when we have an opportunity. Mm -hmm. It has to be in a general election. Well, I'm going to wrap up with some concluding comments. Uh, even those of us who are law-abiding citizens are, realistically, one police or eyewitness or forensic lab mistake away from being arrested and convicted unjustly. Thus, while it may not be popular to speak out on behalf of those on death row who have been convicted of some horrible crimes, many are likely innocent. And even for those who aren't, as Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky said, a society should be judged not by how it treats its outstanding citizens, but by how it treats its criminals. It is simply wrong to kill to show that killing is wrong. Even Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s widow, recognized the universality of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. She wrote, as one whose husband and mother-in-law have died the victims of murder, I stand firmly and unequivocally opposed to the death penalty. An evil deed is not redeemed by an evil deed of retaliation. Justice is never advanced in the taking of a human life. Morality is never upheld by a legalized murder. As a civilized society, we should support investments in a criminal justice system that will benefit those who obey the law and those who transgress with the goal of creating a safer society for all to enjoy lives free of worry, allowing us to instead focus on life's beauty. I want to remind our viewers that there are numerous open access articles, slideshows, and links to at least a thousand organizations working not just on the death penalty but on other social justice issues on the public health and social justice website. I would like to especially thank Ron Steiner for joining us today for his eloquence and passion regarding this very important issue and thank you to our viewers We'll see you next time.